HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Alexis Santos, a food editor at the Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. Throughout season four of the Feed Feed podcast, we will be trying to help you solve the daily question that we're all faced with, which is what's for dinner? Each week, we will be speaking with members of the hashtag Feed Feed community who are a constant source of ideas and inspiration and help us get dinner on the table every night. Today, I am very lucky to be joined by Eugene Wong, aka at the underscored huge food. That's the underscored E-U-G-E food. Eugene is a professional chef and content creator who just became a new father. Born and raised in Toronto, Canada, he focuses more on teaching techniques and cooking methods rather than full recipes. Known mostly for his knife skills, he is focusing on making cooking more approachable for home cooks and giving guidance for new chefs stepping into a professional kitchen. Thank you so much for being here, Eugene. I'm very excited to chat with you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I am both super nervous and super excited. Oh my gosh. Well, you are amazing and you obviously can do it all as a new father. So your son is about two months now and you've told me all about kind of <laughs> the trials and tribulations of fatherhood. But I guess before we get started, any major pieces of advice for any new parents out there after you've been doing this for two months? Um... No, just, you just, (laughs) no, there's nothing that can prepare you. There's like, you can look at all the books and you can YouTube all the videos, but from what I can tell you, it's like 50% of all the things that are in the books and the videos are true and 50% are false. So you just have to, it all depends on the kid, I think. Well, your son Ian is adorable and I'm sure you and your wife are doing an amazing job. So congratulations again on that. Thank you. You're doing Okay. I wouldn't say I'm the model parent, but we are doing okay. (laughs) Good, not great. We'll we'll go with that. We'll go with that. If I'm being honest. If I'm being honest. (laughs) So you're a new father, but let's go back and rewind all the way to your childhood. So I know you live in Canada now, but what's kind of your backstory? Were you born and raised in Canada? What is is your family's background? Um, Tell me a little bit about kind of your, I guess, ethnicity and where you were kind of raised. 
Yeah, so born and raised in Toronto, uh, Canada. I grew up in a little place called Guildwood. It's like a white suburb area east of uh, Toronto. And uh, I grew up, I was like the only Asian kid, let alone Chinese. My, my parents are from uh, mainland China. Mm-hmm. I'm what they call a CBC, a Canadian-born Chinese. Which, oh! Yeah, so I don't actually speak Chinese. Like, I, I learned a little bit. I, uh, I lived in Hong Kong for like a year and a half. And at that time, I worked in a few Michelin star places, which is the whole reason why I went there. And during my time there, I learned a little bit of Cantonese, but still a bit, still a bit of a struggle. And um, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm Canadian. I'm just straight up from Toronto. Uh, <laughs> I'm probably going to be here for a very long time. We have a son now, so I don't want to move around too much until he gets a little bit older. And um, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. So were you, I guess, did you grow up with kind of, I guess, Chinese cuisine from your parents or grandparents? Or what was kind of the food that you grew up eating at home? So to be honest, um, both of my parents worked and they wouldn't get home until about five. So my father would make uh, comfort Chinese food that uh, his mom used to make him. And on the weekends, we would go out to Chinese restaurants just around the city in Toronto with my grandparents and my uh, uncle and aunt. And that's pretty much the only kind of Chinese exposure. Other than that, um, I was like a 80s, 90s kid. I ate ravioli, I ate craft <laughs> dinner and like chicken fingers. And I did not have like a super influential food background. I was just like a normal kid. And well, the, yeah. there you go. Was So what were some of those like comfort, I guess, Chinese food dishes that you did have when you occasionally had them. I'm sure they were delicious, but what oh, were man. they? <laughs> my dad, uh, my, my favorites was my dad's fried rice, and he did this really nice uh, soy sauce braised chicken dish. Mm. And we usually always eat over rice with some sort of vegetables, but he would, uh, he would make like, you know, some salmon dishes, some other Chinese other dishes and stuff. But it wasn't like a, it's not like something that you'd eat in a restaurant just because my father was from Shanghai. So the flavor combinations that he used were that they use in like northern China. And oh. yeah, I, I never knew that. I never knew that until um, much later on in my life. I just, I just painted everything as all Chinese food because I grew yeah. up with all sort of like white people, black people. And so I kind of associate all Chinese food as the same thing when I was a kid, just because there is like minimal exposure for me. Sure. And I'm sure, I mean, most people here in the U.S. do the same thing. I mean, I think that, I mean, it makes sense that it's a huge country, that there would be different regional, you know, takes on things. But I think that's probably something that a lot of people in the U.S. and probably Canada, too, don't know about that, you know, if you're eating something from northern China versus southern China, it's going to be a very different experience. Is that true? Yeah. All right. So it's just like the cuisine, the cuisine on China, like if you go to China, it's clearly different. But if like from here, it's just, it's it's just sort of painted all like all Chinese food, noodles, fried rice, you know, Mm -hmm. soy sauce, chicken, uh, uh, general towels, all that stuff. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's something new for me to learn today. So thanks, Eugene. (laughs) So you seemed like you were kind of growing up, you know, like you said, with like chicken fingers and, you know, probably like Chef Boyardee and stuff like that. And so when did you kind of start 
developing your appreciation and passion for, I guess, food and cooking? Uh, so this is, so I have a very weird, unique, uh, food industry. Like my, like my journey is completely Mm -hmm. different than everybody else's. When I was a teenager, I worked in fast food. I worked at Arby's and like Taco Bell. And then I like moved to like casual dining, like bars and stuff. And I actually did not care about the food aspect at all until I was like, maybe early 20s when I uh, met this guy named Kevin, uh, not the audio guy, but this guy named Kevin, <laughs> at, uh, at a casual dining restaurant, and he introduced me to a real restaurant. It was called Origin in, uh, Origin in 2009 or 2010 in Toronto, and it was the very first restaurant that we made everything from scratch. Like, we mm. made all our stocks and tomato sauces. We actually had to do all of the work but before then it was just fast food casual dining you open bags with pre-made sauces you open bags of already cut tomatoes and onions and stuff it was just purely assembly and to be honest the only reason why i stayed in the food scene even before i took food seriously was the like sort of community feel of what it's like to be in a kitchen mm-hmm. because there there's no real like HR, so you could truly be yourself. And I was a really, really weird kid when I was a teenager. I was, <laughs> I was really weird. I was like an artsy fartsy kid. I I went to uh, an art university, but dropped out after two years. And so I was like all over the place. But I always felt at home being in any kind of kitchen, just because of like the self expression type oh, wow. of uh, environment. That's so cool. So you kind of got that experience working at that kind of more I don't know for from scratch type restaurant and then from there um, I know a little bit about a little bit about your story but I guess if you could kind of continue explaining what you did you ended up going and working at a couple Michelin star places and what was kind of the rest of your journey after that yeah so um, once I got introduced to making things from scratch I uh, went to culinary school in my city George Brown College and I dropped out of that too because I just found out that I would rather work than go to school. Yeah. And uh, from there, I worked at an Italian place, a French place. I worked for uh, Momofuku that opened in Toronto. And uh, I got kind of tired of the Toronto scene. And I wanted to experience a true like Michelin star. I wanted to tr- experience something completely different. So I uh, booked a one-way ticket to Hong Kong with my now wife. And we both just sort of went there and just showed up and just found jobs. So I found a job at a place called LPW and there it was totally different. It was like a 26 seater open kitchen. The kitchen was in the center. The chairs sort of wrapped around the whole kitchen. So it was almost like a show. It was Mm. like if you were a client or a customer, you would sit at the bar and you would just watch the cooks make your 10 course food right in front of you and that was pretty much it and it was really really intense and I loved every second of it because I actually do really love performing it's just the thing that I really really (laughs) I was in a band and I was in a band when I was in my youth and I did a few shows too wasn't very good but I did look at that that's so cool yeah I mean it makes sense because you were explaining that you were kind of like an art kid and whatever so I, I could see kind of the aspect of 
you know, kitchen as theater being very, very cool for you. That sounds really cool. Um, And just out of curiosity, when you wanted to kind of attain that Michelin star level training, why did you decide on Hong Kong versus, I guess, the U.S. or anywhere else that was probably a lot closer to you? (laughs) Yeah, Um, I chose Hong Kong because I actually have family that live there. And being in Canada and just living around my parents and just like my uncle and aunt, just a small family here surrounded by um, not Asian people, I felt like I had to go there to sort of connect with my roots Mm -hmm. and my family. And when I went there, I did. I found my family, the other 90% of them, I met them. I kind of tried to figure out their story and just tried to figure out living somewhere else other than North America. Yeah. And for any, if if there's any like new cook that is listening right now, if you have the opportunity to jump into a different continent, you should 100% go because it will teach you how to function with so much like fear and (laughs) you need to be able to conquer that fear because I didn't speak Chinese when I went over there. So when Mm -hmm. I went over there, I was like an outsider. I couldn't speak the language. I couldn't actually verbally communicate with anybody in the kitchen except for the chef. The chef was uh, Canadian and he was the only one. So it was a real struggle for me. But then I learned, right? And then in the kitchen, sometimes you don't need to actually talk. It's more like body movement, body behavior. If you yell like hot behind, people are going to know that you're holding up like a pot full of hot stuff. It's like, Mm -hmm. watch out. Otherwise, you're going to get hurt. So it's a very, very, like, expressed learning uh, thing that every new cook should at least try once. Yeah, my gosh, that sounds like, I mean, the fact that you were able to, like, reconnect with distant relatives and, like, learn Chinese. Do you, are you, are you fluent? Like, can you still speak Chinese well now to this day? No, no, I can, no, (laughs) no, no, no. no. I can understand a little bit in, like, a food restaurant context, but if you tried to speak to me, like, ingredients. yeah, yeah. But other than that, no. no okay. No way. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. But no, I mean, either way, like, sounds like a very, very cool, immersive experience. And it seems like it kind of turned the tide for you as far as your cooking repertoire and, like, experience in the kitchen. And that sounds absolutely amazing. So the next question for you is, so your cooking style, I'm sure, evolved tremendously over all this time. So how would you kind of explain or, I guess, summarize the evolution of your cooking style? Did it go from kind of, like, regular, I mean, there's Momofuku and then you're working at this Michelin starred restaurant in China and now you're back home, like cooking for a, you and a baby. Like, <laughs> I'm sure this has all changed a lot. So I guess explain that for me. So my style now is super basic and I don't follow any recipes. Any real chef never follows a recipe because mm-hmm. they, they have thousands of recipes in their head. And um, I just make things that are super healthy. My family and I are super healthy. Like there's no dairy, like there's no butter, there's no cream. I don't work with a lot of flour at home. Like we're trying to keep it like really, really healthy. I feel Ooh. amazing, right? I feel amazing because like my pantry is just fresh ingredients and just like some basic meat. And I just, my whole, my whole thing is the food just has to taste good and balanced. I'm all about balance. Mm-hmm. And I don't like things that are way too vinegary or sour. I don't like things that are way too sugary and mm-hmm. sweet. Even if it is a dessert, there has to be some kind of balance. And that's pretty much how I cook. And I never really know what I'm going to be making 
for dinner. Like I don't even know what I'm going to make for, for dinner tonight. <laughs> right. It's just, uh, I just wing it every single night. And that's why I really focus on techniques and methods, because if you know the technique and the method to cook anything, then you can apply that method to a certain recipe. And like, I want to be like that bridge for anybody that wants to learn how to like poach an egg. And then once you know how to poach an egg, you can add it to whatever dish you can add to a rice dish or like a brunch Benedict or like anything you want. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, no, I mean, I love that. That's how you approach your content. And like every time I watch you or talk to you, I learn so much. So, I mean, I think that's like a really cool niche in the space that has yet to be filled. So um, we appreciate your work, Eugene. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> Yay. So you have, it sounds, your whole diet sounds like really great. And I'm like, oh God, I just ate a bagel for lunch. Like I don't even <laughs> want to tell him. <laughs> do you, I guess, what influences do you have now in what you're cooking? Are you kind of cooking a lot of Chinese inspired or what is kind of, or just kind of whatever you feel like in the given moment? Is there a cuisine that you, I guess, make the most of? So I've been dabbling with a lot of uh, Chinese now, like Chinese, Chinese, because um, I don't know if you know this in Chinese families and Chinese culture, when uh, the woman gets pregnant, there are very specific dishes that they're supposed to eat for the month after, like, postpartum. Oh, and then even I did not know that. It, yeah, so there's these weird, like, as, as, like, as, like, a cook and a chef, like, making these dishes, a lot of the things just do not make sense in terms <laughs> of, like, a flavor profile. It's strictly, like, you need this for blood flow in your body. Like, you need to eat ginger, but with the skin on. You what? have to have the yeah. You have to have these eggs boiled in this weird Chinese sugar that you can only find in like super specialty shops with this weird sweet vinegar. Boil this for three days, and then boil your eggs and and store it for one month before you consume it. And it's what? all of these like ancient Chinese super I don't know pregnancy things that every Chinese family sort of does. And so I kind of just came off of that, and now. We're going back to normal, like we're doing like healthy chicken, just either steamed or stir fried and just, you know, steamed vegetables, just real healthy stuff because we need to be healthy for the baby. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, no and, kidding. Yeah. But my experimentation right now is just uh, Cantonese cuisine because when, it, it was funny. I went, to, I went to Hong Kong in Asia to learn how to cook uh, Michelin star uh, food and mm -hmm. I wasn't even cooking Chinese food. I was cooking French food. Well, French oh, okay. mixed with a little Chinese, right? Because when you work in Michelin's, you don't really work and learn the local stuff. You learn the high, like prestigious, yeah, kind of skillful sense. stuff. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. well, I love like that. Sounds delicious. A French Chinese fusion restaurant. I'm sure the food there was amazing. And, it was pretty good. <laughs> ooh, I need to get over to Asia. I've been, that's been on my list for quite some time, but then obviously oh, the last the like two years have been kind of like a wash yeah. for international travel for the most part. So yeah. hopefully soon. It's um, the best. It's the best. <laughs> Where's oh your favorite gosh. place over there? Well, like, have you been to other places in Asia? Uh, oh, Japan. 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 Okay. Best. Yeah. Japan's my number Japan one. I really want to go to Japan. Best. Oh my God. I want to go so Ooh. bad. Maybe next year. <laughs> yeah, maybe next year. You're probably a ways off with the baby, so get comfortable. 
Well, we're supposed to travel before he's two because it's free airfare before he's two years old. So hopefully oh. hopefully we can take him somewhere before he turns two. So then we'd have to pay for a third air ticket. And then he won't even remember it anyway. But <laughs> Oh, I'll remember it. You'll remember it. You can yeah. take cute pictures with Ian in scenic places and call it a day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is so funny with the kind of ancient Chinese pregnancy remedies. So you kind of, you, you guys both did that hardcore. You were making all this stuff for your wife. Yeah. Yeah, oh wow! It was, it was uh it was very challenging because we're both very tired and like I was I had to make all of these new recipes and I had to stockpile my pantry with all these odd ancient specialty mushrooms and like just all these weird things that I've never even seen before in my life. So it's like a whole new learning curve while trying to cook and experiment, being sleep deprived, yeah. and it was a very big challenge for me. But it's getting better now. It's getting much better. But okay. Before it was a little. It was a struggle. Jeez, did she like? Like, did, did she like it? Did it help? Like, did it work? <laughs> was it That's working? the thing. You don't. You don't know if it actually works, right? It's just. <laughs> you, you don't know. It's just ancient China. Like you restore your inner chi and your inner flow, and like I presume it works. She looks great. I mean, my wife looks fantastic now. After two months after having a baby, she almost lost. She, all of the weight that she gained is now gone. Oh my gosh, so maybe we all need to do this. Yeah, right, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it's magic. It's chi- ancient Chinese magic. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, I'll try to remember that for one day down the road if I maybe have a kid. But interesting. Well, I'm glad she's feeling good and looking good. And I'm sure, I mean, the healthy lifestyle you guys are leading, I'm sure, is contributing to that as well. So, damn, we got the the postpartum routine down to a T over there in the Wong household. <laughs> yeah, man, it's it's uh, it's something. It's definitely something new in my life. So All right. Well, so we talked a little bit about what you kind of do for dinner when you're cooking at home. You're, you're talking about very, like, clean, healthy dishes. What are some examples of, I guess, meals that you're making at home, I guess, for you and the wife on, like, a typical day? So I've been dabbling with a lot of steaming, steamed, steam dishes. So mm-hmm. I, I, I really love this dish that I do. It's just, uh, it's like, I have two. I have a steamed egg, which is just like chicken broth and egg with a little bit of pepper and salt, and you steam it, and then you garnish it with a little bit of soy sauce and a little bit of uh, sesame, and you eat it over rice. It's mm. so good and so simple. Mm. And um, just steamed fish like tilapia with mm-hmm. ginger and scallions and a little bit of fried oil on uh, and a little soy at the end, also eaten on rice. Like these are all classic like Cantonese dishes. And there's just something inherently special when you use the steaming method. It's just, it, it just feels healthy. Like you're not using heavy oils mm-hmm. to like fry something to get that hard caramel. You're, caramelization you're you're just like steaming like ever so delicately like if you steam a fish it's just so delicate and it's like light afterwards and it just feels like you can taste all of the flavors because not because it's steamed and it's not boiled or fried you don't lose any of that uh flavor to the oil in the pan and stuff afterwards right it just stays Mm. in the fish Mm. and i don't know if anybody knows this um the secret to hard boiling an egg and having the eggshell peel off like easy is not actually hard boiled. It's steaming it. If you really? steam an egg, yeah, if you steam an egg the exact same time, thirteen minutes. If you steam an egg, the the shell will come off 
every single time. You won't have, you know, you know when the the flesh gets stuck on the shell. Oh, believe me, yes. <laughs> steam, 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 steam. Don't even really? hard boil steam all the way. Yeah, they okay. say they say like cold water helps. Cold water only stops the cooking process, so the egg doesn't overcook. Mm-hmm. It's it's the extreme heat at a hundred degrees Celsius. Once it hits the egg, like once it goes in, that 100 degrees Celsius cook is the thing that separates the skin from the shell, which makes it incredibly easy to peel. Okay, well, game on. I'm going to do it. I just saw a different hack for that the other day that was that said to put some salt and vinegar in the boiling water, but this sounds more foolproof. I've tried that. I've Does tried it work? That. Uh, it, it was hit or miss for me. When, okay. When I, like, okay, so I think I calculated, I think I've made over well over like 20,000 deviled eggs <laughs> at this one restaurant because we would make, oh God, I don't know. I think I would, I would cook it four flats. Each flat is 30 eggs. So like, oh my God. I, I love deviled like, eggs. Oh, I know. Every, yeah, that's so why I had to make like 20,000 of them. So I tried everything, boiling them, starting starting the eggs from cold and then boil or throwing them in into boiling water. I've tried salt, tried vinegar, and I've tried all of these methods, you know, shaking shaking the pot with a little bit of the warm water afterwards to, to loosen up the eggs, shocking them in cold water, seeing what is the best way to peel the egg. And hands down, steaming is the only way that is 100% guaranteed. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I... I trusted you before, but now hearing about all this trial and error, I trust <laughs> you even more. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if anybody's got this squared away, it's you. I should do a video on that, eh? You should, definitely. Should. Absolutely, because that's like such a like a universal thing that like everybody wants to figure out how to do. I remember I saw um, a Sad Poppy video once where he showed how to like peel a soft-boiled egg, yeah. and everybody was losing their minds. Because it's just, like, such a normal thing that, like, literally, no matter how skilled you are in the kitchen, like, almost everybody's making eggs, you know? So that would be a good one. Add that to your list. (laughs) I love Brandon. Brandon Brandon is, like, oh, Brandon's the best. I love that guy so much. Yeah, well, there you go. Take your inspiration from that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So tell me a little bit about what some of these ingredients are that you always have in your kitchen. I know you mentioned kind of having fresh stuff on hand. What are, what's some stuff that's in the Wong household at all times? 
Honestly, basic stuff. Like, I always have onions, garlic, some potatoes, scallions, and ginger. Um, I always buy my meat in bulk, either, like, from Costco or from a butchery, and I vac seal them. I portion them. I pre-season them with, like, I brine them and salt them, and then I'll vac seal portioned portions and keep really? them in my freezer. Yeah. So it works to pre-season them and then freeze them? Mm-hmm. Sure does. Oh. Just like pre-season, like marinade or brine or both. Yeah. Interesting. And, yeah. And I've never even vac sealing, that. vac sealing is like the key to keeping the quality the exact same as when you first bought it. Like wrapping it in saran wrap and throwing it in your freezer is probably the worst thing that you could do. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Back sealing and pre-seasoning. All right, where I should be jotting down all these uh, Eugene tips. <laughs> it's a lot so of work. I'm not gonna lie. Like, like back sealing a bunch of stuff. That's like industry stuff that we do. And when we prep, is like we do we do huge batches and we back seal portions uh, just to make sure that they like retain their quality. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the most part, that's that's pretty much what I have. And then I'll go I'll go shopping for like some fresh green vegetables. I'll go try to go to Asian markets and get. Uh, Chinese people are big on green leafy veg mm-hmm. and like bok choy and yu choy, like all these cho- choice vegetable. And then yes. we bought all these choice. So weekly grocery visits for leafy greens, but then maybe like monthly visits to Costco to get bags of onions and potatoes and, um, yeah, just super basic stuff. Like I don't mm-hmm. buy, I don't use milk or cream or butter as much anymore. I actually consider all those things cheat codes in the kitchen because yeah. like it just makes everything taste so good but <laughs> <laughs> but they're cheat codes so i don't really like to use them at home all right so you're just challenging yourself to make things taste good without them yeah it's hard <laughs> <laughs> so what type of like are there certain like seasonings that you kind of always lean on or sauces or anything to kind of work without the cheat codes so I've been dabbling with uh, like these ch- these Chinese jarred sauces because I'm sort of I, I want to go down the realm of like like these black bean chili sauces and also I've been experimenting with different fish sauces because uh, you know Tway Bay Tway mm-hmm. Tway Bay has like a lot of amazing recipes and she did this uh, fish sauce uh, peanut brittle that I never oh I saw tried. that I saw yeah. that. That, that looks really good. Oh my god, it sounds so good. So <laughs> I actually get my inspiration from a lot of uh, all these food creators, but I don't I I don't make anything where they use copious amounts of butter and cream and flour and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like anything fried, I actually stay away from just because fried stuff isn't good for you. So I know I sound very basic, but <laughs> to answer your question, uh, I use different I've been experimenting with different types of soy sauce. Um and nori with sesame seeds. Do you know yes. what furikake is? Yes. Yeah, so I've been trying uh, different combinations of furikake, uh, dabbling with a little bit of dashi, mm. and I'm trying to find these, like, super pure, uh, like, ba- like, like these super basic but super amazing dishes. Even, like, Korean, uh, the Korean seaweed birthday stoop is just seaweed water, beef, and sesame oil. And like I'm trying to find these combinations that are super basic, super easy, but super healthy and delicious. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much that's like the journey that I'm going in right now. Ooh, well, I need to get myself on the Eugene eating plan. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're kind of you're doing God's work, kind of checking up all the boxes of like delicious, healthy, 
satisfying and like, yeah, not bad for you. So definitely keep me posted on if you find out any of these, (laughs) any of these combinations I need to get behind because I am all ears, my friend. For sure. I would actually recommend to anybody is just learn how to make a dashi broth. I'm going to do a video on it. And dashi broth, it's kind of like the easiest thing that you could do. It's literally three ingredients. It's the kombu seaweed, mm-hmm. uh, bonito, which is like a skipper jack tuna uh, that's been dried and cured, mm-hmm. and then water. So you just put the you put the seaweed kombu in the water, and then you bring it up to a near boil. You don't let it boil, and you let it steep for like 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then you take the, the seaweed out, and then you put the bonito in for 10 minutes to steep. And then you take the bonito out, and it's done. That's it. Yeah, that's it. It's super quick and it's super, and this is, this is the base. So this is a Japanese stock Mm -hmm. in all Japanese cuisine. They use this dashi broth for like their ramen dishes and all their soups, their miso soups, like all miso soups are made with what they call a dashi one, which is they make the seaweed and the bonito, put it in one time, Mm -hmm. take the broth, use it for miso. And then they'll start a fresh pot and reuse the uh, seaweed and the bonito again. And they call that a dashi two. It's going to be not as strong in flavor, but then they use that for all their sauces and stuff so that nothing goes to waste. Well, look at that. Yeah. I thought dashi was more complicated than that. So maybe I not. should start making dashi. Yeah. <laughs> and the quality of the dashi is all going to depend on the quality of the kombu and the bonito. Right. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense because, I mean, that's pretty much it. That's all there is yeah. in there. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to have to get, get myself on making some dashi here soon. Mm. <laughs> so tell me, Eugene, who inspires you? Mm, who inspires me? Yes. Um, that is a... T- okay, so I, like, when... You know when Gordon Ramsay first, like, broke out? Yes. Of, like, TV? He was, like, he was like the spark of all, like, TV personality chefs. When he broke out, I was a huge fan. I was like, I want to be like this guy. And so, like, I based my whole career path, like, okay, how do I get to become Gordon Ramsay? I got to work in some really nice restaurants. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I did that. And I went down a crazy journey and that sort of like finding the expert level Michelin star, superstar chef kind of ended when I was in Asia. And the only reason why I stopped that journey was because uh, my father actually passed away in Mm. 2015. And so uh, he, he, he was diagnosed with cancer and my family and the doctor basically said that he only has like a month, maybe two to live. Yeah. So I gave up my job. I gave up, like we had to leave Hong Kong altogether and come back. And I spent maybe three weeks with him before he passed. And I do not regret, I do not regret that at all. Like we had some like really nice talks. And during that time, I like kind of had to have a conversation with myself and like, why am I working so hard for uh, all these at all these restaurants? Like when you work in the food industry, this, the thing that people don't tell you is you're working twelve to sixteen hour days, mm-hmm. six days a week, no days off. So you like you you work in the holiday. So this is one of the reasons why I actually want to try to be sort of a guide for anyone new stepping into a professional kitchen because. Like, I went to culinary school. I dropped out of culinary school. When I came back from Asia, I, I refused to work in a restaurant. So, so I ended up working at that culinary school 
So, yeah. yeah, so so I actually know what goes on behind the scenes at a culinary school, and it's not what you'd seem, or it's not what you'd think. Mm-hmm. And so I, it totally changed my perspective, and I wanted to be like a real sort of guiding light for anybody new to the kitchen. So if anybody that's working in the industry, I would actually encourage you just to DM me anywhere, and if you have any real questions that you did not hear in culinary school, I will answer all of them. And I'm talking about questions about like bullying. Like if, like if you have like a crazy bully in the kitchen that you can't get around, even if that bully is the chef, it's very important to talk about because that is something that I struggle with as well. Cause I actually feel really insecure about that. Aww. Yeah. And, um, if you have any problems with, you know, what, like the struggle of like, if, it sounds really shitty, but like women really struggle in professional kitchens and they sort of get like sexual harassed, which is a huge right. fucking problem. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And it drives me insane. And even when you're like a minority, you get bullied and it's something that people don't talk about and it has to be talked to. It has to be talked about because there's no real like human resources in a kitchen. There's no HR. Right, right. It's sort of like this like toxic mentality. It's like, oh man up, work your station. Oh, you got burned suck it up. I got burned and I worked like a full station. No problem. Oh, you got cut. Suck it up. Put a bandaid on it and keep going. Right. And it's like, there are all these issues that uh, a lot of cooks struggle with and they're too afraid to talk about in the open. I know I was right. You like, it's really hard to talk about like the insecurities that you have. Like, I don't feel comfortable working at this place, but like this chef has Michelin stars, but he's being a bully he has all the leverage. Like I mm-hmm. want to progress in my professional career, but do I stay at this place just so I can put them on my resume or do I leave because it's actually better for my mental health and physical health too? Right. So, yeah. So I, I, I really encourage anybody that is struggling in the kitchen, if they're questioning themselves to message me, cause I can actually really help in that aspect. Right. Yeah. Yikes. Well, that's, I mean, amazing of you to offer and it just, yeah, I mean, it all, what you're saying all makes perfect sense. And it's, I I don't think any of that is a secret, but it's all stuff that just kind of gets like brushed under the rug and people don't really bring to the forefront as much as they probably should. And it is a very different mentality in, you know, a kitchen than really most other workplaces that I've ever seen. It's almost like it's sort of military, like with kind of like, yeah, chef, you know what I mean? Like it gets, it's intense. Like every kitchen that I've, you know, been in just to see, I'm like, oh my gosh! Like, <laughs> so this I have this, uh, I have this little theory. So the, the the initial question was like, who inspires me? Um, uh, there's like pretty much every cook, any like content creator on TikTok or Instagram. They're they're all inspirational to me because you, you like you took the leap. You know, you put yourself out there, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you noticed this, but I definitely do. Um, there are far more uh, food creators out there that aren't professionally trained in a kitchen like there's a there's a couple of us right mm-hmm. brandon uh brandon sad poppy is one of them a cook named matt is another one of them right yeah but then there's so many more that just have no real professional experience and i think a lot of that has to do with the insecurities that come from working in a professional kitchen because when you're in there and you create something there's a lot of like oh that doesn't taste good it's like oh my god i can't believe you used this soy sauce instead of that why wouldn't you put more salt why wouldn't you do this spice so it's like 
you keep second guessing yourself, especially when it comes to like cooking competitions as well. It's like we're putting all of these like the best dishes and things on like a pedestal, and it's actually not very good mentally for a cook that's just trying to start out. Right. Right. You know. Interesting. Well, yeah, you're chock full of uh, insights on this. <laughs> and like, it definitely, you know, can get very, very deep. And, you know, geez, I mean, I, yikes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go, I didn't, I didn't mean to go down that deep, uh, no, that dark no, no. road. I'm but... just like, I, I just feel bad that, you know, for all the people that are dealing with that. And I'm kind of glad that you're on the other, the other side of it. And, you know, kind of in a place to offer advice and, you know, not have to deal with that anymore and focus on you and your family and, you know, just kind of glad to, glad to see that, that you've kind of come around to the other side, honestly. (laughs) Jeez. Well, Eugene, was there anything else important to add that I didn't ask you about your culinary journey or uh, anything major that I didn't touch on already? I mean, not really. Like right now, my journey is just education. Mm -hmm. Like, like I said, I'm very passionate about guiding new cooks like in the right path and make sure that they're not doing something that uh, they don't feel comfortable with. Uh, I honestly believe that there isn't enough education out there. Uh, The Food Network TV shows are great for like inspiration, creativity, but when it comes to actually learning how to execute, that's where I want to try and push my efforts, which is why I always focus on knife skills and just basic things, just because I want to be the bridge for you to use the techniques that I teach you to then use on other people's recipes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, as I said before, it's a very, you know, interesting and helpful niche of, you know, food content that I don't think is really touched on as much as, you know, recipes and, you know, kind of the other, you know, flashy food porny ASMR, you know, I think that you definitely are kind of filling that void of, education and techniques and kind of comfort in the kitchen, whether that be in a restaurant or in your kitchen at home. And yeah, I mean, I just, I appreciate you and obviously hundreds of thousands of other people do. So (laughs) thank you so much, Eugene. (laughs) Thank you. I actually, I really like uh, your content. Your content is getting so much better. And I love, I actually like my favorite part about your content is the commentary. I love your commentary on your videos. (laughs) Yeah, I try to. Yeah, I think that's kind of the thing. I mean, I'm sure you and many others know, like, have dealt with that too. Of just like, oh, how do I make something? But then also like, put my personality in it. You know, while I'm while you're like filming, and you know, it's like it's obviously different than how you are when you're just sitting there talking to someone. Than when you kind of are multitasking, trying to cook something and talk. And you know, it's it's a whole it's a whole beast. So appreciate that, Eugene. Yeah, I love it. Keep up the good work. You're doing amazing. Thank you, you too, and amazing father and husband and chef and creator and all of the above. So I really appreciate you coming on here today and telling me about more about your story. Every time I talk to you, I learn so much. And so I hope that everybody listening was able to kind of take away some important tips and life lessons and themes that I think are very, very useful for all, all kinds of folks. So I appreciate you being here. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. This is honestly my first or technically my second podcast and you can't see it right now, but I am still super nervous that we're doing this. Oh my God, Eugene. (laughs) (laughs) You're such a pro. I could not tell at all. You're so, you know, well-spoken and articulate and good at explaining things. So could not tell at all. Don't you worry. You're too nice.
Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is the Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Feed Feed. And don't forget to follow at the huge food on Instagram and TikTok. That's at the underscore E-U-G-E food. If you have a food story to tell or want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or restaurateur who has helped you solve the what's for dinner question, we would love your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from our listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Thanks for listening.